Welcome to the Female Athlete Project, Season 2. My name is Chloe Dalton. I'm an Olympic gold medalist in Rugby Sevens and I'm now playing for the GWS Giants in the AFLW. I started TFAP to share the stories of incredible female athletes and to address the gender inequalities that exist within the sports media space. We want to change that story and we're all about making news and highlights of women's sport easily accessible across our platforms. Our hope is that more female athletes will become household names and in turn enable the next generation of young kids to pick up a ball, racket, bat, board, whatever they want to pick. Athlete Vanessa Lowe knows all too well that change can happen quickly and drastically. At the age of 15, while living in Germany, she fell from a train platform, losing both of her legs and spent the next five months in hospital fighting for her life. When she woke from her coma, as you'll hear, the future she had planned for herself had evaporated and the confident sporting teenager was faced with massive uncertainty and fears. She could have retreated from life, but she did none of that. She instead discovered Paralympic sport and she absolutely thrived. She found what she described the beauty within the change and her athletics career took off. She has competed at three Paralympics, 2012 and 2016, where she represented her native Germany before making a shift to represent Australia at Tokyo 2020 after marrying Aussie Paralympic gold medalist Scott Reardon. In Rio, Lowe won gold in the long jump and silver in the 100 metres. And in Tokyo, she had us glued to our TVs. She was unstoppable in the long jump, breaking the world record three times in just over an hour to win the gold medal. Vanessa's an incredible person. Her story is phenomenal, but I absolutely love her approach to adversity and how she sees it as an opportunity. And she's absolutely made the most of her opportunities to date. I hope you enjoy this one. Vanessa Lowe, welcome to the Female Athlete Project. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to have a chat. So you're currently undergoing quarantine. How has it been so far uh, being back in Australia and, and being locked up in, the, in a hotel room? I feel like it has been a little bit of a rollercoaster of emotions, um, not just the last few years, but also the quarantine itself. Uh, so mm-hmm. um, one day I loved just sleeping in and having the time for myself. And then the next day I was like, oh, I'm so unmotivated and I really need to go home. I think a lot of people who are in lockdown around the country feel similar. It's that weird feeling of some days you feel very motivated to do things and other days you just have no motivation at all to do anything. Yeah, hundred percent. But it's um, only five more days. Not that anyone is counting. (laughs) (laughs) Counting down the hours. (laughs) We often start off by heading back to childhood. Um, So I'd love to know what you were like as a little kid growing up in Germany. Oh, I was a confident little girl. Um, I have a little photo um, that I um, still look at every single day almost um, where I was wearing the shoes of my dad. Um, so I think it's a really good uh, metaphor because there was really no shoes too big for me in my dreams. I felt like, um, well, I grew up in that small little town and um, all I wanted to do was travel the world and see the world and um, meet a lot of interesting people. Did you play sport from a young age? Yeah, I did a lot of sports. Um, so I didn't really specify in anything in particular. I played a bit of European handball. I oh. did a lot of snow sports in winter. I did a lot of running. And overall, I just loved any, anything and everything that had to do with sports. Um, what was sport like for you growing up in a small town in Germany? Um, it was fantastic because we had an amazing community. Um, 
we had a lot of um, different offers for different sport clubs and different um, sports to play. And um, I really loved running by myself. Um, so that was a really great one, considering I grew up basically in the middle of nature. I mean, there were lakes and um, and timber around and, and there was just, yeah, so many beautiful places to run to. Was it a part of like, was it part of your family growing up? Like if I think about my family, like my parents always loved sports so much and I was very competitive with my two brothers in the backyard. Was it something that was part of your family, the love for sport? Um, yeah, it's so funny because I think um, my dad and I are the really sporty ones and that basically watch ev- every sport. <laughs> um, and then both of my sisters and my mom are, aren't into it at all. Oh, so, okay. Um, yeah, it was a really um, balance between both um, pure opposites my dad actually has every single book of the Olympics at home. So he was always into that very traditional sports. We watched a lot of traditional winter sports and um, traditional summer sports. Um, I watched a lot of Formula One and um, yeah, it was really just every sport, whatever was on the TV, I would watch. Did you have something when you were a little kid? Did you have a dream of what you wanted to become? Did you want to be an athlete or you didn't really know at that point? To be fair, I never wanted to be an athlete. Um, how ah. fun would that work out? I just loved doing it. And I wasn't really that competitive either, to be completely fair. I think I just mm. liked it for the sake of doing it and because I loved running and loved being active. Did I read that you also did ballet? Oh, that's right. Yeah, I actually did um, seven years of ballet. Um, and wow. so I did it for a fair while and I really enjoyed doing it. But again, like I think when it got to... Um, the merge of, of becoming something more, um, not professional, but um, something that would require to train every day. Um, I didn't feel like it. I just wanted to do it because I love doing it. And mm. uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when you were 15 years old, you were involved in an accident. Can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, what that process was like for you recovering in the hospital? Yeah, it was, um, it wasn't a huge one. I mean, um, I spent basically the entire summer in, in hospital after my accident. Um, I think it was all up of basically five months. Um, I was in coma for a couple of weeks. And um, I guess like growing up in Northern Germany, like summer is always the magical time of the year where everyone, mm. you know, is enjoying life. And, and at that time I was just fighting for my life. Um, all my friends were, were enjoying the summer. And mm. um, I guess when I um, got home, I didn't realize, I guess, how much, was still ahead of me. I always thought um, going home and, and leaving hospital was a big milestone. But um, yeah, little did I know and realize that probably the major part of work and of, um, of struggle was really ahead at that point. Mm. I think people often see how incredible you are competing, say on the world stage at the Paralympics, but wouldn't have as much of an understanding of the process of actually learning to walk with prosthetics and, and that whole rehab process, which would be like incredibly challenging. How long did that take you to become comfortable, even just not even getting into sport again, but just functioning in everyday life? Yeah, it was, um, it was a challenging process. And I hear a lot of stories of, I mean, my husband, um, he basically came home, he lost one of his legs in, in an accident um, in his early life. And um, he went back home within two months and was back walking within a month, basically. And um, that's nothing like my story. Um, I had some severe injuries um, apart from losing my legs. So my body was in a fairly tough, rough condition um, when I got home. And after laying in hospital bed for more than five months, like just even sitting up for long periods was a real struggle. And 
um, especially in the beginning, I really struggled to sleep because I had a lot of what they call phantom pains, um, which mm. is a pain that's associated when you lose a limb. Um, and yeah, I really, um, really struggled just to get back healthy and, and, and feel okay. Um, and when I started walking, um, it, it, it started with the intent that, um, I mean, I was quite lighthearted and naive about it. I thought, you know, I know how to walk, um, prosthetic mm. legs out there. I've seen people use it. So, um, why would this be so difficult and why would there be a challenge attached to this? But, um, my body really didn't tolerate my prosthetics in the beginning. I mean, I had really, um, open, like open wounds still, and I still had like a lot of pain in my bones and, um, so even just like standing up, like it was just always like, um, yeah, painful. And I guess then you start being really, um, upset cause you have all these expectations that it's, you know, going to be, um, not necessarily an easy process, but, um, it's going to be, um, yeah, you, you already pictured how you thought things were, um, going to turn out and it just didn't seem to quite meet that. Um, it was a fairly long and painful process. Mm. What was it? like on days where you would find it really hard, what was it that I guess was your motivation? Was it returning back to that, like being able to function in that space or did you have goals of being active again? Did you, did you start thinking about that? I think because like um, wanting to travel the world, like um, when mm. I lost that mobility and independence, I guess um, it became less realistic. And when I got to the challenges of trying to gain back that physical health again and trying to return back to my normal life, I realized that that was just not an option that, um, I always say adversity, overcoming adversity is all fun and games until it can't be overcome. And I guess that's right. where I found myself in and where I think where I really struggled with in the headspace. It wasn't necessarily about losing the legs. I think it was more about losing, um, the independence that, um, I felt I wanted for my life. And so that was the biggest motivator is that I wanted to gain back that independence and mobility again and um, feel free and, and where I want to be and what I want to do. And um, I guess I got to the point where it's like, um, I mean, what did I have to lose? Like this wasn't the mm. life that I wanted. And um, everyone else around me was so worried about asking the question, what if she fails? I started asking, what if this works? And um, and actually took a glance of the power of authorship and really um, declared what I wanted my story to um, to look like. That's really powerful. I like this idea of the overcoming adversity thing because I think it obviously applies in a, in a whole range of areas of life. And it's just interesting what you said there. Sometimes you can't actually overcome it. Like, do you see it more of a, a process of, of learning? How do you look at adversity? Um, I... I think I've, over the years, I've really rephrased that because, um, I mean, people still, um, try to talk to me about the topic of overcoming adversity. Mm. And I guess what they really want to ask is, um, how do you deal with adversity? So I rephrase it in a sense that, um, if we, um, reimagine adversity as something more than just tough times, but rather see it as a change, a change that we haven't adapted ourselves yet to, we, um, can actually discover different options and different, um, outcomes for ourselves. So mm. instead of just trying to return back to normal and overcome and try to come out the other side, unmarked and untouched and the same person as before, maybe if we, um, actually start adapting ourselves and opening ourselves up to that change, we discover different pathways and, um, yeah, potentially even find opportunities. And, um, I guess, um, for me, sport was this big opportunity that, um, showed itself on the other side. Yeah, I'd love to hear about how you then um, got back involved with sport. Um, it, it was, I think, still in my pursuit of returning to somewhat my normal life and, and return back to 
what I thought was um, my identity and, and sport was a big part of that. So um, I guess I, I knew straight away that I needed to run again to just feel me again. And um, I, um, <laughs> I faced a lot of um, skepticism when I just broke the idea that I wanted to walk on a daily basis, uh, mm. let alone run. So you can only imagine um, there was just simply no one to look up to at that point. I mean, um, at that point, there was no one in the Paralympics with my disability. Like you could barely, wow. um, there was no social media and um, there was no one really to to find examples. And um, I guess that's where I really struggled with. I felt like I had, like um, I either had to pave away, but I wasn't really sure if this was ever going to work out. And um, and I guess my um, imagination was probably a little bit bigger than the ones um, of the people around me. And um, there was like, oh, it's it's great that you have these big plans, but like, how are we going to do this? Because I don't think this is going to work out. And um, yeah, it was a, a very long process to kind of get there. Mm. Did You said there around the skepticism. Were there people that questioned whether you could just walk with the W amputation with the prosthetics rather than like, let alone actually then go and play sport and compete? Yeah, so um, in Germany, we have a healthcare system in which they cover prosthetic legs. However, um, they basically judge what you need based on your abilities. So when I applied for my first set of um, electronic um, legs, which is like quite essential for someone that is missing um, their legs above the knee, they said they weren't willing to spend that money because someone with my disability mainly sits in a wheelchair. So for walking wow. five steps a day, um, it's not worth spending, um, you know, you're looking at $300,000. Um, so, um, I, there was a bit of back and forth and we eventually agreed on that. I get a set of test legs, um, mm-hmm. and I had, um, six weeks to kind of put in, um, the work and, and prove that I'm capable of using that. So I guess I got kind of thrown into the deep end cause I had one chance to make this work and, um, I really had to, um, seize that. So, um, that's kind of how I got into walking and all of a sudden realized it is doable and it requires a lot of work and this will take a while, but at the same time, like it, it can happen. And, um, the kind of the opinion was based on the reality of the time because not many people were doing it. Um, but it doesn't mean that something can't be done simply because it hasn't been done before. And, um, that's, I guess the same where, when I kind of entered the world of sports and didn't find those examples. Um, I soon got exposed to um, a group of athletes that were all running on a prosthetic, um, no one quite with my disability, but um, I realized that all these people are already pushing boundaries and Mm. just because they have done it before um, and and it may be a bit tough on my end, um, it means it's, you know, it's an opportunity and it's, and and it's something that can be done. How did it go from learning to walk again and then learning to do it in then having to learn to run for athletics. Like how, how, how long did that process take? Um, I mean, until I was like fully independently walking, um, we we're talking about two years. Um, mm. so for a fair long time, I still had my wheelchair as a backup and couldn't do a lot of loads. And, um, then later on, I was just using some, some crutches and some help to, um, to feel safe in, in everyday life. So, it was a fairly long process and the last bit kind of overlapped when I started to run. Um, so probably about, um, I want to say maybe two years after my accident, I got my first running legs and, um, did my first few, um, kind of hops, probably more falling than running. I want to say, um, <laughs> the first few months, I mean, I was really just falling over every other step and it didn't feel mm. anything like, um, what running felt before my accident. Um, 
And I think it wasn't until I really committed to building back that physical fitness and really trying to work on myself that I could access the, the running legs and walking legs in the way that allowed me to do it every single day and get better at it. How did you choose which, um, which event you wanted to compete in? I guess like running was something that was always on the cards because I always loved running. Um, mm. But when we talk about the Paralympics, there's always a set amount of events offered for certain disabilities. And um, when I looked into the Paralympics and competing in para-athletics, I actually soon found that the only event that existed for me in that system was um, the 100 meter, the long jump and the short put. And um, so I was like, well, I give the 100 meter a go. I mean, I was more into longer distances and more into, um, you know, running in, um, in nature than, than on the track. But um, I guess that was a good, um, good way to get back into it. And, um, and I really enjoyed it. And um, through some coincidences, just because some of my training mates were doing long jump one day and I just wanted to give it a go. And um, turn out I was pretty decent at it. And um, that's how I kind of ended up in long jump. That's very cool. Is that something that you'd like to see moving forward that there's like more availability of events that you could compete in? Or are you happy with, obviously, the way that you've performed, it's turned out very well and we'll get to that. But would you like to see a more broad selection for people in that classification to compete in? It's very challenging because we only have very set numbers um, of people over the world that um, um, qualify for the disability that you need to have to compete in that class. And um, also want to do sport, also have a talent, are willing to work for it. And um, the more events you offer, the more you spread out those numbers. So what ends up happening is you will have smaller fields and um, that's obviously not what we want. And running on prosthetics can be quite tough on the body, um, especially on the lower back. And so doing those huge loads that you would have to do in order to run longer distances, I guess um, that's why they made the decision to keep it on, on the shorter ones. And, and it's probably um, a decent decision to make. But I really hope that we can grow the numbers in a way that we have decent fields and, and have a decent competition. And um, maybe that will one day allow us to have maybe another one or two events. I think what you're doing and, and the way that you, I guess, compete as an athlete, but also off the track as well, I think that will play a huge role. Like you've talked about as a little kid, you wouldn't have been out when you were younger, you wouldn't have been able to see athletes competing like you. And now through social media, it's pretty powerful that you can have an impact on the next generation of young kids. It is. And I think sometimes social media has such a bad reputation, but it has also the power to, to have such an incredible impact on, on kids, on, on young adults and um, even adults. I mean, you know, um, on, a, on a click, you can access all that information. And I mean, um, I now have the opportunity to connect to an athlete in the United States, um, like literally right now, right then, to to answer questions like you know what um, prosthetic pieces are you using to make this happen yeah, and wow. what are great exercises to do and you can connect to people so much more easily mm. and in particular when you're talking about um, such a um, such a technology heavy um, topic um, which like I mean I love doing sport but I without technology I couldn't run so um, I wasn't necessarily very um, um, eager to learn technology, but I needed to and, and ask the questions and having access to all that information. I mean, it's a life changer. I'd love to hear about your debut. Your international debut was in 2009. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, yeah, it was, it was quite funny because at that point, no one still thought that this was ever a great idea that, that I had because um, so I was at that point competing against 
um, women that are all just missing one leg. Um, so it's just how our classification works. And um, no one with um, double amputation in that field has ever really competed. So there was like, oh, um, maybe she can run, but this is probably never going to be anything where she could win medals or actually compete against the girls. And um, when I got um, to my first competition, I felt so underprepared and so overwhelmed by this new world of competing, but I loved it so much because all of a sudden I got exposed to the true beauties of para sport. I mean, I discovered when I got there that every single person there standing and competing has a story of somewhat hardship or adversity. And um, each one of them chooses to see the choices and chances given to them over whatever has happened to them. So um, all of a sudden it has a way to connect people, not just beyond different um, religion and, and gender and, um, and heritage, but also beyond different abilities. And um, all of a sudden I felt like a, a sense of empowerment that was given to, to me over um, the disempowerment that the loss of my legs kind of meant to me in the, um, in the early part of my story. And I, I think I really truly fell in love with the sport when I went to the first major competition because it was just such an amazing spirit and, and so many amazing lessons learned. And I guess I was just um, incredibly grateful of defying the odds of not only walking, but actually competing in a running event. I mean, yeah, it was incredible. And how did you go in your first competition? Um, I, there was a very small field, to be completely fair. I, I mm-hmm. did take home some medals and I did okay, um, but nothing to be... Um, bragging about, I guess. Um, it was it was more about the experience at that point. Okay. Now for a quick halftime break. Workplace Law is a law firm focused on supporting and empowering female athletes to take control of their careers. If you can't afford an agent or would like to manage your own career, Workplace Law would love to help you. They provide female athletes with guidance through the complexities of player contracts, negotiations and sponsorship agreements, personal brand building, mentoring with on and off field careers, crisis management and work with individuals to ensure they respond to incidents and media stories in an appropriate manner, and advice and representation in disciplinary hearings and tribunals. Find out more at www.workplacelaw.com.au. You got to make your debut uh, representing Germany at the London 2012 Paralympics. What was the experience like for you um, heading into the village and, and just being surrounded by so many other incredible athletes? Um, it, was, it was a very special one. I mean, the first games, um, if you ask any athlete, is always something special. But I guess over the years at that point, I had really built up um, some sort of expectations and I really started to feel that I wanted to um, not just be there, but I actually wanted to perform and I wanted to be at my best and um, wanted to even compete for a medal. and. When I got there and I, I couldn't meet my expectations um, on the track, I think it really um, left me feel disappointed, to be honest, about um, about myself. I felt like even though, um, I mean, the loss of my legs is obviously a much bigger loss, but I think the loss of kind of the belief of my, in myself um, at that point was probably a true representation of the loss that I went through because all of a sudden it became a reality that the opinion of other people of thinking that this is never going to work out for me and that my disability was just simply too too high to compete on that level. Um, and it felt like it was becoming a reality at that competition. And um, and I went home pretty disappointed, um, not just about the result in sport, but I guess um, about the failure of making this, like really creating the story that I wanted, I guess. Wow. Did you, did you want to give up after that? 
Yeah, so I had officially um, retired from sports basically after that. Um, wow. Not many people know I had already um, stopped training. Um, well, I still train for, for fun, but I left the training group and decided to um, not compete anymore and um, really focus on other things in life. And I guess it wasn't until I um, went to visit my friend in America, which was also a German athlete, but she had married an American athlete. Um, that I got really pulled into the world of sports again and really got taught a different mindset around this and um, really make this less about competing against others, but um, competing against myself. And um, her husband, which was also her coach, um, soon became my coach and he kind of talked me into um, moving to the US um, and, and give this another shot. And he promised that if I was to move to the US, he would train me for gold medal. And um, I guess it wasn't so much about the the medal um, promise or, you know, that silly bet that we made that if he was right, I would get his autograph tattooed. Um, <laughs> I think it was more about um, finally coming, um, meeting someone that believed in my dream as much as I did and was as crazy as I was in, in having those big dreams and aspirations and kind of, you know, moving away from thinking realistic and, and more like thinking wild and big. I want to hear about this story. So did you make a bet with your friends in the US, what was the bet that if you won a gold medal, then you had to get a tattoo? That's right. Yeah. So um, we, we made that bet in a wild night out. And <laughs> um, I guess if, um, if you ever make a good decision, it's usually on big wild night out. So um, I went back home after because I was the second last night or so. And I quit my job and sold everything that I owned and moved Whoa. to the US with um, two suitcases and um, kind of the plan to live off my savings for the next few years. <laughs> so, um, it was definitely a wild, a wild move. <laughs> that's, was that quite scary? Like that's a very big risk to take. I think it was, and it wasn't at the same time, because I think at that point I, I didn't feel like I was living the life that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sometimes a bigger risk to kind of stay put and, and not even give it a try than, than actually giving it a proper go. And I guess it wasn't so much about the medal itself. Like it was never really about it. I think it was really about finding my own boundaries, um, both physically as well as mentally. And I guess over the years, I really found myself um, in this really protected little um, world where everyone tried to make sure that I don't fail and that I don't, um, um, you know, get hurt or disappointed. And um, I ended up just never really trying those things. Mm. And I think it was probably the first time ever to actually allow me to fail and allow me to make those big moves and um, go through the um, the processes of, of not always being successful in what I do, but actually at least give it a proper try. Mm. How did the experience go when you first moved over to the USA? Did it take you a while to settle in and, and feel comfortable in that environment? Yeah, look, it, was, um, it wasn't that easy altogether. Um, at that point, I barely spoke a word of English. And, oh, wow. Um, that would have been, was that, 2013, so eight years ago um, now. And my coach there was from a country, Louisiana, so with the thickest accent. Um, <laughs> I could barely understand him. And um, other than him and his wife, I didn't know anyone. I mean, mm. um, all there was, was was really those two and, and, and me. So that was probably the farthest I've ever been away from my family. I mean, there was no such thing as just, you know, going home and, um, and having my parents there um, or my friends um, in the same sense. So um, that was probably the biggest challenge. And then as well, um, fully trusting someone um, that in that environment where, I mean, I barely knew him as a coach. I mean, mm. I knew my friends um, quite well. That was his wife. But at the same time, it was, it was a huge risk. And 
I guess I was in this perfect little world in, in Germany where I had access to the best training facilities and I had a safe apartment. I had like all the security in the world, but um, I was unhappy. And then I went to the US and like we trained in a garage. Like most days we just ran on the roads. Like we barely had access to a track and we didn't have any heating in our facilities. And I mean, it was in the middle of winter. So oh it was like gosh. sometimes minus minuses outside. And I still remember I was like flipping tractor tires with the snow and we did yeah very unconventional training because we just didn't have the facilities, but that's not what really mattered at that point. I mean, I just needed to learn how to work hard and I probably went home crying for probably at least three times of the week because um, it was just like physically so challenging. And he was probably the first person to ever um, fully encourage me to try things. Mm. And I was like, oh, I can't do that. I'm, I'm missing my legs. That exercise doesn't work for me. But he just simply didn't take any excuses. He just wanted me to see, um, wanted to see me try. And, and if it didn't work, then he would adjust it. But um, he pushed me mentally and physically really, really hard. Wow. And so all of that training in the snow and flipping tires and things like that um, then paid off when you got to Rio. Um, you won your very first gold medal in the long jump. What did that feel like? And you also broke the world record. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. With a jump of 4.93 meters. Um, what did it feel like standing on the podium, having the gold medal around your neck? It's, it's so funny because obviously it's a very special moment, but at the same time, I always tell people nothing changes when you win a gold medal. And um, sometimes people are really disappointed when they hear that because they believe it's, you know, that huge um, dream of yours. And once you win it, everything changes for you. But I guess if you haven't found meaning in what you do before winning a medal, then you don't find enjoyment doing it. And I guess it was um, so much more representation of the journey that I went on over the years. And um like really feeling that um, I felt really satisfied knowing that I've given it my all. I know that I pushed my boundaries to the absolute limits and I really felt like I, I belonged there and I deserve to be there simply because I've really poured my entire heart into this. And it wasn't just a physical win. Like I saw my parents um, standing there in the stadium when I received my medal and I saw my mom having tears in her eyes because like all of a sudden, I mean, she realized like um, I'm going to be okay. Like it's not so much about, you know, the medals itself, but like all the losses and, and all the difficult years that I've been through, I think at that point kind of came together. And I realized that when we really, if something is important to us and important enough for us to um, pour our entire heart into, we can make it work. And we sometimes have to shift in shape and, and really change our path in, in different ways um, and, and in different directions that we didn't think um, was possible. But um, sometimes that's what we need to do in order to feel full and happy. And again, like it's not about the medal itself, but I think the meaning behind and the path um, that I went on. Yeah, it's really special. Um, I'd love to talk about you meeting Scott for the first time, who is now your husband, um, an Australian sprinter who also just competed in the Tokyo Paralympics as well. Can you tell us about, do you remember the first time meeting Scott? I, I do. Um, I mean, I've seen him around a little bit because like the competitive world is really small. I mean, you kind of mm -hmm. know the people that are competing on that high level. And I kind of had spotted him and, and recognized him as like for the amazing athlete that he was. But I think it was um, basically the year after I um, had just like quit competitive sport, but then through my trip to America, I kind of found my way back into 
And um, I still remember we were competing in London at the anniversary games, which was in exactly a year after the Paralympic Games, my first Paralympic Games. And mm. both of us had a really good competition and we we're waiting for our medal ceremony. And that's where we met for the first time and actually had a chat and became really close friends and, um, and had an instant connection, really. Um, what has it been like uh, being in a relationship with someone who competes at the same level and, and has to undertake all the training and focus on nutrition and all of those things? Has that been something that you've enjoyed or is it something that sometimes gets a bit tricky? Um, no, I think it has been a really great experience. Um, I, I think when I moved to, the, um, to Australia to kind of live with him and train with him and, and be with him, um, it could have gone two ways. I mean, yeah. first three years we've been separated <laughs> and seeing each other like, you know, two or three times a year for a couple of weeks at the time. And now yeah, we mentioned wow. the pure opposite of living together, training together and literally doing everything together. And it was amazing. I mean, it's amazing to have the support there of someone that truly understands, not just on a sporting level, but on, on many other levels as well. And the lifestyle of an athlete can be very unique and um, sometimes very challenging as well. So having someone with a very similar mindset around the whole topic, um, but also a very similar lifestyle was just very, um, very helpful. And um, I don't think I would have made it all the way to Tokyo if it really wasn't for him by my side. How did that decision come about to represent Australia? And how did it feel after representing Germany at two Paralympics already to, to be going in, in different colours? Okay, it was a difficult decision um, to be completely fair because I'm proud where I'm from and um, I'm really grateful for everything the German team has done for me. I mean, I wouldn't be here today without them. But then at the same time, I had already lived in America for three years and I hadn't really like going to competitions. I, I often met a team that I barely knew. And um, I guess when I faced the challenges of, of living and training in Australia and with a great distance and, and the difference of winter and summer season and um, I think the the decision first came out of or it made the most sense, but I'm really glad that I did it because um, Australia is my home and I guess I felt really home with the Australian team straight away and um, I felt incredibly privileged really to be part of this team because it's probably one of the um, the best teams in the world in the sense of the culture that they have and um, this love for sport in general. I mean, um, Australia is truly amazing in how they support us athletes, um, not just when um, the Paralympics or Olympics are on, but really throughout the entire um, four-year cycle. And um, yeah, I think um, I, I just got hooked on, on being um, with Australian teams straight away. Yeah, I loved watching the Paralympics. There were some very special moments throughout the Games, watching Olympics and Paralympics. There were so many moments of like team, particularly in the athletics team, I think just really special moments where you saw how tight, tightly knit the team members were. Um, we've been like living in a little bubble for a fair while now, um, always trying to be conscious of um, making sure that we aren't at any exposure sites and making sure that we can prepare properly for the Games. And um, I guess when we got to the games, um, all of us, I think it uh, had a different sort of feeling to, to other competitions that we've been through because we really started to realize what an incredible privilege it is to compete and just to be there um, knowing that the world is currently going through this difficult state. And um, yeah, we just had an amazing time being there, um, doing what we love and then being um, with people that were so um, passionate about the same thing that we are. Yeah, very cool. Um, I wanted to play you an audio clip. So going to competing in the long jump in Tokyo, you broke your own world record three times 
in the one event. Sitting in the lead, one jump to go, already jumped 5.20, improved the world record twice. What about a third time, just for fun? Oh, she's hit the board very well. So that final jump was 5 metres 28. Um, a huge jump and a, and a massive improvement even on the 4 metres 93 from Rio just a few years earlier. What was the, what was the difference in that performance and, and the preparation leading up to that incredible performance? I mean, I guess the last few years of preparations were difficult for all of us because um, mm. like usually we have a, a time frame of preparing for something and usually the athletes world is very structured and, and the plans that we have and, and often enough you have very certain, certain time frames. Um, so when that got removed, we had to really think outside the box and we didn't have access to some of the training facilities um, through some of the periods. And so um, I actually, well, we actually took the chance to um, turn this into our advantage and we really had the chance to work on all the little things preparing for a goal that was a little bit farther away so um, I knew I could do a big jump I had put in a lot of extra little um, work in in aspects that I hadn't had the time to work on for many years because you go from competition to competition and I was really prepared um, for a big jump but at the same time having been part of this for 12 years now I know that sport um, has a thing of you know um, it doesn't always happen in the way that you had it imagined. So I was prepared for either way. And I really promised myself to no matter what, and no matter how the competition is going to go, I was going to enjoy it and I was going to have fun with it. And I guess that's where, um, I, I even believe when you see the video, I had the little smile on my face. Um, and it wasn't because I knew that I had already won, but, um, I approached my last jump and it's like, you know what, like, this is what I do this for. Like, I love doing this. I get the chance to do this in front of not a big crowd, but a, a, a big crowd in front of the TVs. And I get to share this journey with the world. And I might as well turn it into something that I enjoy and, and really put the pleasure into this. And and I think that really showed in the last jump. And I think that's why I jumped as far as I did, because um, I, I truly remembered why I do this for. Yeah, I love that. Um, every week I have a question from a six-year-old and from my grandma but I think that's led in quite well. So I might um, play you the question from my granny. Hi, Vanessa. I felt very emotional watching you win gold. What impact do you hope to have through your sport? Um, I always say that um, I want to leave a legacy and um, it's probably quite unusual um, for someone that is still active to say and someone that um, is having the world record, I want to be forgotten because I want people to break my world record. Because that means that I've left a legacy for other young girls realizing that this is something they can do with their lives. This is something that is an option for them. And it, it means that um, I have created something that inspired other girls to do not necessarily the same, but find their own path within this. So I really hope that um, I leave the sport in um, a better place and I found it. And I really hope that there's a lot of girls out there that um, not necessarily find their way into competitive sport, but a sport in general and see um, what it can do to our lives. I mean, it's not, not just, you know, connecting out with uh, community and with um, friends, um, but it's also a great tool to um, push ourselves physically and mentally and, um, and really enjoy something that, that is just so good for us. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I've got a question from six-year-old Frida. Hi, Vanessa. You wear your very special legs every single day. Or do you wear them just when you're jumping? 
<laughs> That's amazing. I love how um, innocent um, the, the questions are from kids. They don't care. Mm. They just want to mm. know. So they ask yeah. whatever comes to their mind. So I wear special legs that I um, run on and jump on, and I only wear them when I'm on the track. Um, they actually have little spikes underneath um, the the toes, so I can't actually run on the road with them. Um, they're really uh-huh. specifically made and set up for um, athletics on the track. And then my everyday walking legs um, are a lot more fancy. Um, they actually have a little computerized unit in it, helping me through all the different um, states that I need in a, in a day because you have to walk different speeds. You have to be able to do uphill and downhill and stairs and sitting down and standing up. And so um, even though a lot of people think that our running legs are the fancy legs, our walking legs actually have a lot more power and in, in being able to handle a lot more difficult situations. Yeah. Wow. And I, I read that you also, are you currently studying computer science or you've already finished studying computer science? Um, look, I finished a first degree in media actually um, in mm-hmm. 2013. And um, when I moved to the US, I picked up a study in computer science and I've studied a little bit here and there. I'm probably about halfway through after, I don't know, six years, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Still a while to go. <laughs> Maybe one day I will finish. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Does that, is that something that I know you mentioned before the importance of technology? Is that, has that been part of the decision or was that something that you wanted to do regardless? Um, I was always probably um, interested in, um, in, in working with computers and stuff. And I guess when I got exposed to the whole prosthetic world, um, I mean, there was a different layer of that as well. But um, altogether, I think this is something that I really enjoyed. And um, in my, I want to say my first life and where I was working as an editor, um, I, I really enjoyed doing it as well. So actually something that I would love to return to and potentially incorporate some of the aspects of computer science to kind of find different levels in that workspace. We missed the part about your preparation in the lead up to Tokyo. So not, um, was it only a couple of months out and you, you had a pretty bad fall that resulted in a concussion? Yeah, see, I never, like playing a non-contact sport, I never really have been exposed to that whole world of concussions, but it was like really unfortunate. I mean, I do all these things on the track and jump like from top speed into a long jump hit. And then um, out of all things, I I slip and fall in the bathroom and I hit my head um, quite badly. Um, And I didn't really realize the impact that it had on me after I still felt very um, flat after awake, I guess. Um, and I spent probably about two weeks in bed, um, trying to deal with, um, this very new condition that I haven't really experienced in the past. And, um, and I guess what really came in handy was over the years, I've really learned how to be, um, adaptable and really be, um, accepting of situations. And I guess I got to that point where, of course I was getting frustrated because all I wanted to do was to train and prepare for the games. But at the same time, I knew that if I didn't take that time now to recover and actually feel at my best, then um, it's, you know, it's not going to work out the way. So I really tried to relax into the situation and give my body the time to heal and recover and um, and really do all the things that I could at that point to make sure that I was still going to be at my best going into Tokyo. But I really tried to not rush um, too much. Um, but of course it was frustrating and it was annoying and it was just, um, I felt like so unnecessary, but I think that's what life is. I mean, so many things just happen that are outside our control and we often enough get frustrated with it because things don't work out the way that they did. But in the end, things not working out the way, um, that I had imagined. I mean, thinking back to my six year old me, I never would have imagined the life that I'm living now and turn out Mm. everything turned out so much better than I could have ever imagined. So 
I guess when we really kind of trust and 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 follow our instincts and and really try to be in the here and now and not try to um, change things, then um, we can really find different pathways that lead lead us to something bigger and better. Mm, definitely. Do you think that's the way that you've looked at that is almost a skill that you've developed over time, or do you think that mindset is like a conscious decision that you make? I think it's still a conscious decision that I need to make. And I still find myself complaining about the tiniest little things and really <laughs> got caught up in about all the things that are annoying or don't work out the way that I had it planned. And I mean, of course, um, sometimes life can be frustrating and sometimes things really go in ways that, um, that, that aren't helpful. And, and I think it's okay to be upset about it initially, but if we don't find the, um, the power to move on and, and really accept, um, how things are and actually, you know, say, look, this has happened. This is how it is, but I make the best out of it. Um, I think this is probably a skill that we have to consciously choose for ourselves. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I finish every interview with three, would you rather questions? Um, have you ever played Would You Rather before? No, I actually haven't. Uh-huh. So you've just got to pick one of the two options. Um, so the first question, um, in Paris in 2024, if you were to compete, would you rather win a third consecutive gold in the long jump or your first gold in the 100 metres? Oh, definitely um, a third gold in the long jump because I will uh-huh. not be running the 100 anymore. Okay. All right. And I've I've read that you've – contemplated retirement post um post tokyo is that something that you've thought more about since being in quarantine or are you leaving leaving that one just leaving it be for the time being <laughs> um I, I think i want to go to paris wow um, but i also learned that life changes mm-hmm. so i'm open to whatever at this point i probably commit to training for another three years only now um but if something you know happens or if something changes so be it that's good I, it's a nice way to look at it it's yeah that's good i like that number two would you rather get a tattoo of your dogs or of your husband's face? Oh, definitely my dogs. Sorry, husband. <laughs> Sorry, Scott. <laughs> but um, oh, that would be make that would make an amazing tattoo, I reckon. <laughs> okay, where did you did you get the tattoo of your friend from America? I did. So there you go. Oh, and so is that his autograph? So that's his autograph, and then um, those are the coordinates where I have won world championship medals. Oh, amazing. So it's on your forearm, just for obviously for people who listen to the podcast who won't be able to see it. So it's so coordinates of all the places you've won a world champ medal. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So they actually um, uh, one coordinate missing. So I still need to figure out um, how to edit. I didn't really think (laughs) it through. It was a bit of a spontaneous one, but um, I'm sure I'll find a good spot for it. That's very cool. All right. Number three, would you rather only be able to eat German sausages or Bunnings sausages for the rest of your life? Oh, can't beat a Bunnings sausage for sure. (gasps) Yes, she's true Aussie now. (laughs) I mean, that's why we go to Bunnings, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the only reason you go. I love that. And then before we finish, where can people find you on Instagram? Um, Yeah, so that's Vanessa Low 90. Um, So V-A-N-E-S-S-A-L-O-W 90. And, um, yeah, that's a great opportunity to follow along or get in touch. Um, feel free to reach out. That'd be amazing. I always love communicating and, um, getting in touch with people. So amazing. Um, thank you so much for coming on for a chat today. It's been awesome getting to know you and your story. And I think you have a very beautiful way of looking at life. And I think even just the way you're talking about Paris, it's like, uh, I hope to go, but it's okay if I don't, like if something else happens, I think it's really a really special way that you're kind of 
living in the moment and, and just enjoying it as it comes. So I've, I've loved the chance to have a chat with you. Thank you so much, Chloe. And thank you so much for having me on this morning. Um, what you do is so important. I mean, we need a platform for this. We need to connect through sports. And I guess more females need to be able to, to see sport and able to um, imagine what they want to do and what they can do in that space. So thank you so much for doing this. Oh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you got something out of this episode, I would absolutely love it if you could send it on to one person who you think might enjoy it. Otherwise, subscribe, give us a review and make sure you follow us on Instagram at The Female Athlete Project to stay up to date with podcast episodes, merch drops and of course, news and stories about epic female athletes.